Welcome to this Forthright Radio for July 29th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington, Jacob M. Grumbach, where he is a faculty associate with the Harry Bridges Center for Labor Studies. His research focuses on the political economy of the United States with an emphasis on public policy, racial and economic inequality, American federalism, health policy, climate change, and statistical methods. His book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, which investigates the causes and consequences of the nationalization of state politics since the 1970s, is published by Princeton University Press. Perhaps you remember Ari Berman's piece from Mother Jones Magazine from May 13, 2021, headlined, Leaked Video, Dark Money Group Brags About Writing GOP Voter Suppression Bills Across the Country. I'm Ari Berman, voting rights reporter for Mother Jones, with an exclusive new video from Documented about a right-wing group leading the GOP's war on voting. I had one message for him. Do not wait to sign that bill. If you wait even an hour, you will look weak. This bill needs to be signed immediately. You're watching Jessica Anderson. We know that the fraud is real. We know that it can be proven. These choices really show that the the swamp is alive and well. The left is using this basically as psychological warfare. A former Trump administration official and now the executive director of Heritage Action for America talking to top donors in Tucson, Arizona in late April. She's telling them about a meeting she had with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp just three days before the Georgia legislature passed a sweeping bill rolling back voting access in that state. The state legislature in Georgia got it done, and you can help own this and cheerlead this if you sign it quickly. Do not delay. But according to the video, Heritage Action did much more than just advocate for the bill. Iowa was the first state that we got to work in, and we did it quickly, and we did it quietly. Honestly, nobody noticed. At the end of the day, the bill that Governor Kemp signed and the Georgia legislature marshaled through had eight key provisions that Heritage recommended. This leaked video reveals how Heritage is leading a massive right-wing campaign to suppress voting rights in key battleground states like Georgia, Arizona, Florida, and Iowa just this year. We're working with these state legislators to make sure they have all of the information they need to draft the bills. In some cases, we actually draft them for them, or we have a sentinel on our behalf give them the model legislation so it has that grassroots, you know, from the bottom up uh, type of vibe. While these bills are being sold as protecting quote-unquote election integrity, the real purpose seems to be to help Republicans win elections. They plan to spend $24 million over the next two years in Michigan, Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Texas, Pennsylvania, and beyond to quote-unquote right the wrongs of November. And we are going to take the fierce fire that is in every single one of our bellies to right the wrongs of November, to right the, right the wrongs of the mistreatment against these men, and move it into other states. The Heritage Foundation is one of the best-funded think tanks in Republican circles. They write the policy, and their sister organization, the dark money group Heritage Action, makes it happen. From writing and advocating these anti-democratic bills to leading the effort to block the For the People Act in Congress, Heritage is weaponizing Trump's big lie to motivate their donors and their base 
to strip Americans of their fundamental right to vote. To read my story with investigative reporter Nick Sergi of the Watchdog Group Documented, go to motherjones.com. Professor Grumbach's work, meticulously researched, examines how national anti-democracy forces have captured state legislatures and executive branches, threatening the very foundations of our republic. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Jacob Grumbach. Great to be here. In your book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, just out on July 19th from Princeton University Press, you write, quote, There is a pattern in American history when state governments have wide policy leeway and there is wide policy variation across states. American democracies tend to suffer. The United States in the 2020s is in one of those periods, end of that quote. You mentioned the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the ultra-conservative Supreme Court poised to overturn the Affordable Care Act, as well as make it easier for states to gerrymander, negate efforts to address catastrophic climate change, etc., And to quote again, these cases will accelerate the trends that are making the state level the central policy battleground of American politics, ending that quote. Your book is a warning that this is an increasingly ominous trend. Now, this seems counterintuitive. Shouldn't sending policy issues to the more local state level allow for greater local control by voters? But before we address the specifics of that question, you begin your book by stating that when you began your doctoral dissertation in 2015, it was what you call a before time. What did you mean by that? And how did that realization lead to your subsequent research? What a great sort of outline of the book's arguments, Joy. So that sort of line about the before times, I was trying to subtly talk about the change in November 2016 of the election of Donald Trump as president and the realization across expert communities and among many political observers that American democracy was really under threat during that period. And those threats had been really bubbling up long before that, decades before that, and especially during the decade of the 2010s. But I think the 2016 election put this all in extremely stark relief. And with the current January 6th congressional hearings, it seems even starker. There are many who are just deeply concerned about whether the United States can remain a democracy. We really seem to be at a turning point in that regard. But before we go further, please remind our listeners of how our nation is organized. The term federalism can be a bit confusing. Would you please explain federalism? Absolutely. So the backdrop to all of this is the U.S. Constitution is really unique across democracies and democratic republics across the world. So the American Constitution, it has two levels of government that are outlined in the Constitution, the states, which were the initial colonies that revolted against the British, and then the Constitution established a national government as well. So two levels of government and that multi-level governance when both the national government 
and the lower state governments both have their separate authority that can't be encroached or abolished by the other. That is what federalism is. But there are really dozens of other federalist countries around the world, like Mexico, Canada, Switzerland, Germany, India, and many more. But the U.S. is especially unique in its federalism because it puts much more authority at the level of the state governments, at the lower level. And that's really, really important. And most importantly, I think, for this discussion is that the U.S., again, somewhat uniquely puts democratic institutions at the lower level. So the states regulate and administer elections from, you know, local dog catcher up to the presidency. States draw legislative districts, including for Congress, and states also hold police powers. So states really throughout American history have determined in large part who is allowed to vote and eligible to vote, who is free or potentially enslaved, who is allowed to enter potentially segregated institutions, how one's vote counts in determining congressional majorities, and how presidents are elected through the Electoral College, which is done through states giving electoral votes to a presidential candidate. So this is all really unique. And as you mentioned, there's really been a long-term pattern in American history when it comes to democracy. So the main forces in protecting or expanding or diminishing democracy are the different institutions of American government. So on the one hand, you have state legislatures. And on the other, you also have, you have Congress and the Supreme Court. And a pattern that's gone over and over through American history when we experience democratic backsliding and threats to American democracy is that the Supreme Court gives permissive wide authority for state legislatures to essentially do whatever they want. And state legislatures often then engage in democratic backsliding and Congress decides whether to stop that or not. And they often do not organize to stop it. And we're in precisely another one of those moments now. And I don't want to say this is identical to earlier periods of American democratic decline after Reconstruction and the establishment of Jim Crow or the period of slavery, those eras when black Americans and women were not allowed to vote or fully disenfranchised or institutions were fully racially segregated or much worse Native American removal and slavery and so forth. We're not in the same ballpark as that, but democratic backsliding in the U.S. right now is quite meaningful and very dangerous. I think there are people who would say we're not in precisely those same situations yet. There seems to be a direction towards that potentially. People including members of the Supreme Court, are openly speaking of negating the 14th Amendment, for example. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for the future to discuss. You identify three major crises in 2020 that you follow to describe your, your thesis. What were those? In 2020, there's three different crises that I think really put into focus the trouble in American federalism and this decentralized form of federalism that gives so much authority to the state level and decentralizes authority so dramatically. So one is the COVID crisis, where we saw, compared to other countries that have more centralized systems of public administration, of social welfare provision, 
end of accountability in a democracy. They tended to perform better on COVID than the U.S., where governors across different states and mayors across different cities had real trouble coordinating to get the PPE equipment for their essential workers early on. We had decentralized accountability where it's really hard to tell during a crisis like COVID and such decentralization whether if COVID is going badly in your area, should you blame your governor? Should you blame the president? Which level of government is really responsible for this was a really tough thing. And you saw governors performing badly, blaming a president who was performing badly. It's really hard for voters to really back out who to hold accountable. And then a second crisis in 2020 is of sort of policing and That was sparked by the police murder of George Floyd, of course, and uprisings across the country. But there again, in American policing, that's another way of seeing problems with American institutional decentralization and federalism, where the national government doesn't control policing in the U.S. Rather, you have a set of police departments across the country that are really as powerful as the state and local governments that are meant to control them, that are their commanders in chief. So changes to policing and police reform has proved to be near impossible in the U.S. And some of my statistical analysis really shows that policing and criminal justice policy are similar across Democratic and Republican areas, despite politics changing so much over this time period, despite record-setting protests and then sort of a backlash over this past year or two against that wave of policing reform protests, we see policing not change much. So that's, again, a point about decentralization. But finally, and most importantly, and I think that the business end of the book, I'd say, is the 2020 crisis of democracy, where you mentioned January 6th, 2021, an attempted insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But the 2020 election came after a decade of real democratic backsliding in the states, where states enabled by the Supreme Court, many states engaged in record-setting gerrymandering that led to biased districting, meaning that some voters have a much greater voice in electing members of Congress and state legislatures. We saw voter suppression. And we also have seen most acutely dangerously the potential for what's called electoral subversion of presidential elections. And that would happen if a state legislature decided they don't want to award the electoral college votes to the presidential candidate who wins their state, but rather to whichever presidential candidate they want. And that almost happened in 2020. And it looks like there's the potential for the Supreme Court to fully sort of endorse that through the independent state legislature doctrine. And that in 2024, a swing state legislature could essentially subvert and So might say, you know, steal a presidential election and cause a constitutional crisis in 2024. So I think that's the most acute sort of institutional danger. But all of those came into pretty stark relief in 2020. I want you to expand a little bit more on the police department issue. You say that they actually resemble cartels. And throughout your book, you draw stark differences between when the Democrats have control of the legislature and when the Republicans have control of the legislature. However, this is one area where you could not really find differences. Why did you describe them as practically cartels? 
really well put, Joy. So the first background here is that across policy areas, so reproductive rights, LGBT rights, marijuana policy, gun control, taxation of the wealthy, health policy and Medicaid expansion, uh, uh, labor relations, you know, right to work laws or policies that support labor unions or not climate policy. All of these areas have seen dramatic divergence between red and blue states with states controlled by Republicans restricting labor unions and cutting taxes and states controlled by Democrats passing new climate policies and various policies in support of LGBT rights and so forth. But on policing, by contrast, you don't see much difference. So the tough on crime era that rose since the 1970s and really peaked in the 1990s was a bipartisan affair, and it remains so. And the reason I conclude that police departments resemble cartels is because cartels maintain their own sort of spheres of power and are really insulated from the power of and influence of voters and other democratic inputs. So what I mean there is we can contrast this with the U.S. military, which, of course, has its problems. But when the commander in chief of the military, Joe Biden, says we are withdrawing from Afghanistan, the military obeys that. By contrast, in a city like New York City, Bill de Blasio runs on a police reform ticket. But the New York Police Department is essentially impervious to all the attempts at reform and actually uses their own power to avoid making changes. So Bill de Blasio was a case that I found fascinating where it really looks like in many of these reformist Democratic administrations at the state and local level, it's not that elected Democrats don't want to reform policing. It's that they really can't because police departments have their own independent source of power and can really threaten commanders in chief by threatening work slowdowns, threatening to not actually solve crimes and threatening to be oppositional to the administration. And we don't see this in any other bureaucracy set of like government agents. Nowhere else in American life do government agents so disobey and resist the orders of their commander in chief. We don't see this with public school teachers. We don't see this with environmental protection agency administrators or occupational safety hazard administration factory auditors or people who work at the IRS. That doesn't happen, but it does consistently when it comes to policing. So that's another area compared to other wealthy democracies across the world. They tend to have more nationally centralized policing and a more hierarchical chain of command, more like a military where disobedience faces accountability rather than policing, which is much more self-regulated by police departments. And associated with that, in my mind at least, is the incredible prison buildup that the United States has experienced since the 1980s at the state level. And this also tends to be bipartisan. Exactly right. So criminal justice, including incarceration, is done at the state and local level. So states control over 90 to 95 percent of people in jails and prison are at the state and local level, not in the federal penitentiary, which is reserved for some new interstate drug crimes and RICO cases against the mafia and so forth. 
rare cases are international trafficking and so forth is done with federal criminal justice, but almost all of it's done at the state and local level. And that has, as you mentioned, Joy, uh, the U.S. since the 1970s and 80s, the prison population has skyrocketed to the point where the U.S. has far more people under correctional control per capita and as an absolute number than any other regime on earth, including authoritarian regimes. So this has been a real problem for analysts where I think a neglect in I'm from the discipline of political science, but I'm linked with other social sciences, disciplines like sociology and economics. And across the board, scholars really neglected mass incarceration in thinking about American democracy. And when you look at mass incarceration and the fact that such a large proportion of the American public, especially black Americans, then Latino Americans, but also even the white incarceration rate in the U.S. is higher than almost every other country's overall incarceration rate. Like this is across the board. There's racial inequality, but across the board, extreme incarceration. If it were in another country, we'd call it quite authoritarian, right? Furthermore, in many low-income communities, disproportionately black Police really have authoritarian control of the streets and people face much more low level forms of harassment and sort of interrogation by police in their day to day lives. So all of that, it puts American democracy in a bit of a different light, but is, again, uh, an issue at the state and local level. And it has significant ramifications at the level of voting as well, because in most jurisdictions, people convicted of felonies are not able to vote, or it is much more difficult for them to vote. It's beyond the scope of this discussion to go into that more deeply. We should address what you call the mythos of American federalism. Decentralists, Brandeisians, and the New Federalists. Would you share with our listeners, Jake Rumbach, what these different areas of American federalism historically have been? As you mentioned in your introduction really nicely, like when you give authority to the state level, shouldn't this be, you know, a great boon to American democracy because you're allowing states to customize policy to the wishes of their constituents, right? California is very different than Mississippi, which is different from Maine, which is different from New Mexico. And each of these states, you know, some are going to have more religious populations. Some are going to be more sort of libertine or socially liberal populations. And isn't it great that we can customize policy based on the wishes of constituents? And so that's one long-term argument going back to the Federalist Papers and James Madison, that decentralization allows for this type of tailoring and customization. Another argument is that federalism produces harmony in this big, diverse country. If we had to battle over every issue nationally, people would be much more at each other's throats. But if we just allowed states to do their own abortion policies, right, not and potentially ban it if they wish, then this will turn down the temperature on in national politics. And I think we're observing that very much not being the case with respect to abortion right now, the idea that giving authority to the state level to potentially ban abortion would somehow produce more national harmony doesn't appear to be bearing out. Then a third argument in the sort of mythos of American federalism, the sort of eighth grade U.S. history type of version we may have learned is 
federalism, in addition to being able to customize policy and to bring politicians closer to their constituents on like distant Washington, D.C., another argument is that it protects against tyranny. We heard this a lot after Donald Trump's election from mainstream commentators that thank God that we have federalism because now Donald Trump can't capture every state's election administration the way he would if we just had one national election administration. Then there's a series of other arguments. You mentioned Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who said states could be laboratories of democracy, sort of experimenting with different policies and learning from each other. But what my book lays out systematically is that all of these arguments, they may or may not have been true in the distant past in American history. I don't have the data to really systematically analyze it throughout the entirety of American history. But right now, all of those functions of federalism, those optimistic predictions of how federalism would help us are really not happening now. Now all of those have fallen away. And the reason why states no longer, you know, there's no real benefit of this customization or protection against tyranny. A big reason is that the political parties have become these national coordinated teams Whereas U.S. constitutional institutions remain really decentralized. So the parties, the Democratic and especially Republican parties, are highly centralized, whereas the institutions are highly decentralized. And this mismatch is really dismantling those potentially positive virtues of the American Federalist system. And what about the new Federalists? So, yeah, the New Federalists were a school of thought mostly in economics and political economy in the post-World War II period and beyond. They argued that federalism was great because it allows people to vote with their feet, as they'd call it. They can not only vote out politicians they don't like, they can actually move states. If you're anti-abortion evangelical and you live in a progressive state, you can now move to a state that wants to ban abortion and this will produce better outcomes for everyone and better governance. But what we see, one problem with this theory, especially now in an era of economic inequality, is that ordinary people can't just pick up and leave their lives. For example, there are millions and millions of Democratic voters in Texas, a red state, and there are millions and millions of Republican voters in California. It's really hard for ordinary working class people to change jobs, leave potentially family and social networks and move. But it's much easier for big investors and titans of industry to move their capital. And what that means is that this threat of exiting, voting with your feet, is very unequal. And this helps produce a sort of political inequality where politicians at the state level listen to the wealthy much more than they listen to everyone else. On the other hand, there have been numerous reports over the past few years of Republicans from particularly Southern California up and moving to Texas uh, was widely reported. And also certain tech companies from Silicon Valley disgusted with the anti-libertarian bents of California government uh, also moving to Texas. And for decades, certain individuals have been moving to Idaho, for example, because of their political inclination. So do you have any comments on the report such as that? 
Yeah, so there's been some, you're exactly right, that there are some, you know, very clear examples of this happening, as well as examples of companies saying, like, we're going to put all 50 states into a bidding war for us, and whoever can give us the most tax breaks will move there. And what that does is that drives down, that makes every state compete against each other, and that drives down the ability to tax and provide social services at the state level because everybody's competing to cut their taxes to attract this industry. So that gives that type of big investors or companies a lot more influence in state-level politics than they otherwise would if we had a centralized what's called a unitary system of government, the way most other democracies without this multi-level federalism structure their institutions. But it's true that it is one nice thing about federalism is that there is this variation and you can move. I don't want to say if there's no truth to that. People do move based on preferences to some extent. But one other big backdrop to this is like, Again, why it's not sort of a free choice for everyone is the blue states on the coast disproportionately really do have this housing crisis. So California, the average price of a home now in California is just I'm one of these elder millennials who, as they say, ate too much avocado toast and worries about my ability to ever own a home in one of these expensive states. But that long term lack of providing new housing supply has really led to extremely expensive housing. And that's a huge reason why populations of lower housing cost states are increasing compared to the ones with such high housing costs. We're speaking with Jacob Grumbach, his book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, is just out from Princeton University Press. Let's get to the national party's role of this. A lot. I should let listeners know that a great deal of your book is data-driven and you demonstrate your methodology of how you came up with the data. So it really stands well against any challenges to your assertions on that level. But what have you been finding in terms of the role of the nationalizing of the major parties and the effects on the states? Well, thanks, Joy. It's really the most important thing for a quantitative social scientist like myself is to evidentiary standards to make an argument in modern social science are really, really high. It's funny how people think of what professors do these days, but in the social sciences where it's just really, really high standards of evidence to be able to publish your paper or book. So you're right, like this is based on really a bit too much data work that potentially if uh, your listeners are interested, they might want to get interested in the statistical side of it all. But you're right, the main sort of driving force in this transformation of American politics over the past generation that I'm arguing is threatening American democracy is the nationalization of the two parties, the Democratic and Republican parties. And there's a lot of causes, long-term causes of these parties becoming more national. And by national, I mean these parties are both, they're now more different. So the Democratic and Republican parties are more different at the national level. They stand for different policies and different goals. They're also nationally coordinated. So groups 
that are affiliated with the Democratic and Republican parties. They talk to each other much more. They're much more of a team. And that's regardless of the geography. So now a Wisconsin Republican is much more like a deep South Republican than before. And a Democrat in California is much more similar to a Democrat in Northern Virginia than before. The parties are becoming more similar to themselves and more different from each other. There's a number of reasons for that. One is a long-term process called racial realignment. And there's a book called Racial Realignment by Eric Schickler, who documents this, but this is also found in many, many other books and pieces of work. But the Democratic Party in the mid-20th century was very decentralized. It had a southern segregationist wing, and it had a northern wing of, like, labor union civil rights types of politicians in the north, in northern cities like Detroit, Chicago, and New York City. What happened though, was over the long term, the segregationist wing became Republican in the South, and the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights in the post-civil rights period, and the Republican Party, the party of racial conservatism. So racial realignment is the first driving force. That's based on strategic action by politicians of both parties and voters reacting to the civil rights movement, many forces for that. But the other ones are the other forces driving nationalization of the parties are more recent. One, for example, is the nationalization of media. So political media, we all know, used to be state and local politics. Journalism was a much bigger feature of American political media. And now it's much more national cable news, national Internet based media. And those really dominate and the rise of the Internet reduced newspaper revenues, which led to much more sort of national coverage. And we know statistically that the creation, for example, of Fox News is really, really important. Like it seems cliche to say, oh, Fox News has a really big role in American politics. But the statistics are really just so clear. It made politics and political coverage much more national and it made voters in areas that got Fox News much more interested in voting for Republicans as well. Those forces. And then finally, the nationalization of fundraising and fundraising organizations. So whereas in the mid 20th century, you might have been part of your local labor union at work and a local PTA at school. Maybe you had a local hunting club if you were interested in guns. You had a local rotary club and the local bird watching club for the environmentalists and things like that. Now those versions are all national groups. Instead of the hunting club, you now have the national NRA and sort of gun rights networks. Instead of more localized religious organizations, you now have evangelical megachurches that have a much more national and political orientation. As opposed to local labor unions, you now just don't have labor unions as much anymore. So instead, people don't have that to connect themselves to policy and politics at work. Instead of an environmentalist birdwatching club, you donate, you send a check to your national climate change concern group and hope that they support national climate policy. All of that sort of fundraising and political organizing has become more national as well. What this means is now we have a national Democratic and a national Republican Party, and they're playing out the national conflicts through subnational state level institutions. And this gives new incentives for the parties to change the rules of democracy at the state level in pursuit of their national goals. And that's become 
especially clear on the Republican side since 2010. Is that what is meant by the devolution revolution? That's right. So the devolution revolution is starts in haste with Reagan in the 80s. But the goal there is to devolve authority, move authority from the national level down to the state and local level in all sorts of areas. This is true of something like devolving welfare policy of various forms. The Clinton 1996 welfare reform is a form of devolution to the states and many more areas like that. But more recently, that's kicked into hyperdrive as the Supreme Court, like the Dobbs decision is kind of an extreme example of this, saying now we'll give states the ability to fully ban abortion. Or before that, the Shelby County decision on the Voting Rights Act in 2013 said states have new freedom to make it more inconvenient and restrictive to vote. That devolved more authority to the states and gave states more leeway to become more different in these policy areas. Jake, this is something you don't necessarily address in your book, but hopefully you have some thoughts on it. It seems to me that the Republican, the National Republican Party is being steered by its most extreme Elements. I'm thinking of the Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gases and the Go- Gomerts of um, Arizona. They seem to just let these people be as extreme, I think is the most polite way I can characterize them. On the other hand, the, the National Democratic Party really seems to put the kibosh on what would be considered their extremes. People who are going for national health care, reducing the military budget, uh, that sort of thing. Do you have any thoughts on the differences in, in how the parties handle their extreme ends? Yeah, so that's really an, such an important line of questioning there. And there is a lot of other great political science research on sort of why do the parties stand for what they stand for and why do parties, politicians act in these particular ways and develop these types of strategies. But I would say you make a nice point. I think it's worth distinguishing. There's two debates going on. One is who is more extreme on regular public policy? Like is the Democrats infrastructure plan more extreme than the Republicans spending cut plan or their whose health care plan is more extreme? That's a really tough question. I would tend to say the Republicans economic and social policy platform is more extreme, but there's a lot of different ways to compare that. You know, society becomes does become more liberal over time. So I guess you could say now supporting same sex marriage is so mainstream now, but I guess 50 years ago, that would have been seen as extreme. So this is a really tough question. But I think the bigger question now is, who is more extreme with respect to democracy and democratic institutions, the rule of law, the legitimacy of their political opposition? And those are there's only one answer there, which is that the Republican Party is uniquely antagonistic to democratic norms and procedures in that way. Many Republicans remain affiliated with the sort of stop the steal conspiracy that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. There's a threat of 
electoral subversion in 2024. And we've also seen, and I document statistically, that it's really Republican-controlled states over the past couple of decades, but especially since 2010, when a wave of Republican control swept states in, for example, the Midwest. Those Republican states really did diminish their Democratic performance by restricting voting, by drawing extremely biased legislative districts. And I've got to talk about gerrymandering for just one second here. So gerrymandering is really, really, really important where now in some states, it's so extreme where a minority of voters in the state can really set the majority of the state legislature due to gerrymandering. And that helps to explain why Despite abortion rights being really popular throughout the country, 61% of Americans support legal abortion. And in most states, even ones that are going to ban abortion, very likely, you have majorities of the state's voters and constituents supporting abortion rights. But the state legislature is still likely to ban abortion because that state legislature that majority is voted in power by a minority of citizens due to gerrymandering. So again, what that means is that gerrymandering means you can pack all of the other parties' voters into a small number of districts. So all their voters are packed and they waste a lot of votes. And then your party uses their votes more efficiently. So you get more legislative seats. So states like Wisconsin and North Carolina in the 2010s really set mathematical records for sort of the bias, the partisan advantage they gave the Republican Party in their district maps. And that helps solidify Republican state legislative majorities, even when majorities of voters didn't vote for Republican state legislative candidates. So all of that is the case. We see asymmetry, partisan asymmetry with respect to democratic institutions. But now let's ask the next question, which you asked really nicely, is why is that the case? Why did the Republican Party become like this and the Democratic Party not really like that with respect to democratic institutions? And there I look to scholars like there's a scholar at Harvard who studies democracy around the world. His name is Dan Ziblatt. He wrote a great book in 2017 about democracy and conservative parties around the world. And he makes a really nice argument that the Republican Party is pretty unique around the world because it combines its elite, very wealthy wing within the party that supports tax cuts for high income earners and tax cuts on investments and supports deregulation of the economy and of banking and really opposes climate regulation because many of the titans of industry earn money through extractive industry and fossil fuels that opposes labor rights and the minimum wage because many in that constituency are employers in low-wage industries like in retail and things like that and food production and things. So that's one reason is that the wealthy in all societies around the world since the advent of democracy, the wealthy kind of know that they're not going to win free and fair elections on the basis of saying, please redistribute more of the masses money up to us, the financial elites. That's like not a popular platform. And democracy itself is kind of about it starts because it's this sort of trade off where the rich say, okay, we'll give some of our money to the masses because they have all these votes. And in turn, the masses won't like 
fully overthrow us. So that's kind of what democracy is, is this sort of balance between the economic elites and the masses. That's one reason why conservative parties around the world may not support expansive democracy. But the conservative parties around the world support big business, you know, and don't reject democracy all the time. So one reason, in addition, that's unique about the Republican Party is it combines that business wing of the party that really sets the policy agenda. So, for example, during the Trump administration, you know, he was the white working class candidate and so forth. But his major policy proposals that the Republican Party passed was the high end tax cuts for the very wealthy and then the attempted repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Neither of those policies are really driven by the white working class electoral base of Donald Trump. It's driven by the business wing. But then the electoral base of the Republican Party also may have some reason to oppose democracy. And that's because they're highly motivated by the current sort of culture war and anti-immigration based politics. That's really actually most Americans right now vote on the basis of social identity and social policy, regardless of party. People don't tend to vote as much based on economic policy. And the Republican Party, it's very clear the electoral base is sensing the country slipping away and their position in the overall social hierarchy slipping away as younger generation comes of age, as culture has really shifted and prioritized young people, people of color, people who have different gender and sexual identities. There's been a real cultural shift that has gone along with a lot of economic shifts over the past generation. And that's what motivates the electoral base. So the Republican Party basically combines European far-right anti-immigration and culture war politics with a unique high-end business wing. And that's pretty unique around the world where most of the time a party's either very anti-immigration and things like that, but doesn't have this business class wing, or it just has the business class wing without the sort of anti-immigration culture war politics, but the Republican Party combines both. And I think that helps to explain why it's uniquely oppositional to democratic institutions in the U.S. Jake, let's get back to the nationalization of political parties. You had a take on the role of money that isn't that easy to understand, but let's try and figure it out. You analyze the role of money from individuals versus money from interest group activists versus political action committee money. Please explain what you have found in your research. That sounds great. So you're right. So I'm I'm building on a lot of other research that looks at the influence of money in politics. So maybe this is time for a little backstory. Money in politics comes from all different types of sources in the U.S. So there's individual regular donors like you or me who might donate 20 or 50 bucks to a politician we like potentially in our own district or potentially across the country if we're especially inspired by them. Then there's organizational donors like corporations, labor unions, or activist groups like anti-abortion groups and so forth. And then there's this group of donors who are highly engaged that are members of activist groups, and they are themselves individual donors. So in that chapter, I look at those particular donors, but they're just part of a larger ecosystem of money really mattering. And I think it's especially important 
as well. We can't observe it statistically because of the law. They're dark money donors. But the rise of post-Citizens United big rogue billionaire dark money donors does really have an effect on politics. But it's harder to really understand because by law, we can't always see who's donating the money. But I look at these interest group activists who I argue really helped nationalize American politics as groups like, if you remember in the early, mid-2000s, the group, and they're still around, but they were really influential in revolutionizing fundraising through the internet, but moveon.org, if you're a progressive during the Bush administration, you might have remembered that organization. They did a great job. They would raise money from across the country, and then they'd help people They give endorsements in state legislative primary elections and state legislative elections in general. And what that meant is that these typically really boring state legislative elections that were kind of localized, they got tapped into a national network and moveon.org would say, oh, this state legislative primary candidate is really good on climate change. And that served to help Democratic pressure sort of Democratic state level politicians to get with the National Democratic Party program in order to get this moveon.org-related activist money. That happened also on the Republican side very strongly with groups like the NRA, which if you go to the NRA website, they have an online tool to help you call your state legislator with a script that tells you how to lobby them and say, don't ever pass any gun control. Those are new innovations from these national organizations to get involved in state-level politics. And then there's a whole separate group led by, for example, the Koch brothers and others that involve groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, which your listeners may have heard of, that provide model bills to state legislators across the country. And the context for all of this is state legislators barely ever come to the state legislature. They have their regular job that they go to. They don't have many staff or other sort of resources to write policy. So the state level was a really open field for these national groups to step in and influence how state level politics works and get state legislatures on board with national goals and ambitions. We must talk about your state democracy index as we're running out of time. Please tell us about that. Yeah. So that's what's, that's the, I think, become the most probably important part of the book recently. But what I do there is I statistically measure the health of democracy in the states going back to the year 2000. And I do a lot of sort of aggressive statistical techniques to make sure I'm not stacking the deck because democracy is a really broad concept. It's really hard to measure statistically in some objective way. I hope the listeners really trust that I'm doing my due diligence. And in the social sciences, you have to get through a ringer of antagonistic reviewers who are trying to poke holes in your analysis. So I hope this stands up to really deep scrutiny. But what I find there when I statistically measure democracy in the states, I find that some states have been somewhat expanding their democratic performance by passing new laws to make it easier and more convenient to vote or making their districts less gerrymandered and more fair and balanced. And then you have a set of states that are really, really dramatically backsliding and their democratic performance is dramatically worsening, especially during the 2010s. 
And that's due to setting record-breaking gerrymandering and restricting access to voting. And I look into what's causing states to change their democratic performance, especially those states that are engaged in backsliding. And many of the major sort of theories of why that's happening, some focus on, okay, maybe it's an influx of changing demographics and an influx of new immigrants sort of threatens the local native-born population who then rejects democracy. Maybe it's that, or maybe it's uh, uh, something having to do with polarization within the state between maybe Democrats and Republicans are fighting much more, and that's what's causing it. But I find none of those are the case. It's not really anything going on within any single state. It's actually when the Republican Party takes control of a state, then it simply just passes policies to narrow and restrict democracy. So it's really, again, about these national party coalitions. And when one of the national parties takes over a state, I don't say this lightly, this is not something I was looking to find or hoping to find, but it's just very clear the single clearest and biggest cause of democratic backsliding in the states is when a Republican administration takes over the state legislature and governorship. So especially given the effects of gerrymandering, do you see a way for democratic, small d democratic forces to overcome the terrible walls that are built around public opinion actually being manifest at the legislative level. Right. It's really, really difficult now that we're so far down this road of democratic backsliding. It's one of those things you really wish that there was a different sort of like in 2008 and nine, if there is a different orientation around this, or even before in the year 2000 or before that, trying to see the direction that the Republican Party and especially in the states was going with respect to democracy. But now that we're at this level, it's really hard. You know, advocates and people concerned about democracy in the U.S. Yeah, are quite backed up against the corner. But I think there are some bright spots. I mean, the biggest potential solution, of course, would be national public policy. So all of these things I mentioned at the state level, historically, right, Jim Crow laws were abolished by the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts done by Congress nationally that said states can no longer segregate and no longer disenfranchise people. The, a similar set of policies could happen now with respect to banning gerrymandering. Congress can do that. Congress can ban forms of voter suppression and make the ballot more accessible to everyone. You mentioned felon disenfranchisement. National government, you know, Congress can stop that. All of these things are possible. And Congress can pass a law to ban electoral subversion, as I mentioned, for the 2024 presidential election. All of these are possible. But We've noticed it's difficult to get those things through the Senate. So I think with respect to listeners and ordinary Americans and people concerned about democracy, I think getting involved in organizations within your community is the most important. Politics, we know politics is entirely national now. Everybody's looking at what's going on in Washington, D.C. and conflict there. But really getting involved in your community through an organization with ordinary people from your community. And I think the bright spot there, it's limited, but the brightest spot there is in the labor movement right now with younger people through Amazon and Starbucks are organizing. And some of my other research with a professor from Princeton, Paul Freimer, shows that labor 
becoming a union member has an effect on white workers that makes them less racially resentful and more supportive of democratic institutions. So this breakdown of sort of democratic consensus has been in part due to the sort of destruction and dismantling of labor unions, which connect ordinary people of all racial groups to sort of the economic circumstances at their job and real public policy and helps keep people from culture war politics, which is what we're seeing now at the mass level. So I think one bright spot to think about is labor organizing in your community. Well, Jake, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. That was a positive note on which to end our interview. Thanks so much, Joy. You have just heard an interview with Professor Jacob M. Grumbach. His book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics, is published by Princeton University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world with force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who will allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty.